Morning, Glory America. That music means it is time here on the Hugh Hewitt Show for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Each week at this time, the last radio hour of the week, I go high when the rest of the world goes low with Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College. All things about Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, H-I-L-L-S-D-A-L-E dot E-D-U. And all of our conversations dating back to 2013 are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com. If you want to go bone up on your Homer all the way through your Rousseau, all the way way up to the present. We're working our way through the actual United States Constitution. Such a concept. Dr. Arn, good morning to you. How you doing? I'm great. Did, uh, you know, you've got a couple of National Football League players that came out of Hillsdale that are running around the league. You got anyone on the board today, tomorrow? You got, got any prospects for the draft? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I, and I hope he doesn't get drafted. Uh, Danny Drummond, who was our outstanding senior man, whom I want to hire at the college, is a uh, an offensive tackle. We seem to produce those. Yes, you Jared, do. Jared Valdir is as well, and uh, he's a big, wonderful young man, and he's got an idea about the NFL, so he's going to give it a shot. Well, you should let him go to the Browns and help us. <laughs> well, you know, this is terrible in it's Ohio, Chuck. But you know, you you and I could almost play for the Browns. <laughs> <No, right? laughs> it's a terrible thing to say. All right, now look, I, I'm going to start off. With my, I, I, we're in Article Two, which is the presidential article, and we're going to come back to a couple of columns in the in the uh, Wall Street Journal today about presidential power. But first, I have to play you something from Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, yesterday, and then bring up Article Six. Here is Governor Cuomo. I'll also be executing an executive order that says ICE cannot enter a state facility or a state building without a valid uh, judicial warrant. Uh, which would, I believe, address the situation you just mentioned. Now, Article 6, Dr. Arn, of the United States Constitution, which is the Constitution is not that long, and Article 6 is uh, the penultimate article, in its second uh, section says, Article 6, Section 2, this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. How do you square that with uh, Governor Cuomo yesterday? Well, you don't. Uh... This is one of a series of things, you know, the, 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 the country is in constitutional danger, you know, generally speaking, and chiefly because the Congress doesn't make the laws anymore. A bunch of exec, supposed executive branch uh, agencies make almost all the laws. But this interference or this uh, uh, stripping of the president's powers is increasing, and uh, it comes from a million sources and uh, the uh, the governor of new york is the recent example and uh it's going it so uh, think of this the the president so we have a bunch of laws it's supposed to be a nation of laws the supreme law of the land is the constitution and the laws made pursuant to it then we have a unitary executive and his job is to execute the law uh, there's never been a time so clear about why that needs to be a unitary power and they need to act they almost, for goodness sake, failed to, uh, to uh, confirm a secretary of state with this North Korea and Iran stuff going on and Syria stuff going on. And so by the skin of his teeth, Pompeo gets in just in time to get on an airplane and go to Brussels. 
and talk to the NATO foreign ministers. We need to be there. And we almost didn't have anybody to go. Right. And so... And you know, we, and the, Angela Merkel is coming today, and we almost did not have an ambassador confirmed. They confirmed after a year Richard yeah. Grinnell yesterday to be the ambassador to Germany, so that when the chancellor of Germany comes to pay court with President Trump today, at least we will have an ambassador there to introduce her to. Yeah, and see, these things are not just photo ops, right? These are, these are the alternative to war. These are people talking. And, uh, and the idea that you can just stop that. And see, you think about Cuomo again. You brought him up. Uh, if you had to pick a thing that the federal government should be in charge of, it would, wouldn't it be immigration? And, and the reason is the borders of the land, if it is to be a land, a nation unto itself, have to be protected on behalf of all of us. And so it's, it's, there's never been a dispute about that. And yet now officers of the federal government are prevented from entering state buildings without going to a court and getting a warrant. And, you know, uh, p- police officers of all kinds go around and look at things. They patrol. So they can't do that there. So that it's, it's just part of the theme. And it's, he may have the I have not decided yet whether or not a state um, may deny access to its facilities to the federal government. But if the Congress passes a law on immigration and says you will go and find them wherever you are, that will be the supreme law of the land. That that's just. It's just the way it's been. And Lincoln, Andrew Jackson actually began uh, making that very clear as a southerner to the southern states. And Abraham Lincoln made it very clear as soon as he took office. There is a law. It is the Supreme Law. It comes out of the Constitution. Yeah. So in uh, I'm teaching the Constitution this term, and we're near the end of the term, and everybody's exhausted, but it's turned spring here, so we're all happy. Um, and we just finished the Civil War crisis. And first of all, a lot of the things that are going on right now were features of that crisis. Uh, the, the nullification crisis in 1832 involving John Calhoun and Andy Jackson was an early outbreak of the sentiments and controversies that led to the Civil War. And Matt, James Madison was still alive. And he wrote about this supremacy clause. He said, you know, if there is to be one country, then there has to be a supreme set of laws for the country. And if there is such a supreme set of laws, there must be a, a, a place, a single place, where decisions can be made about what those laws are and whether they're constitutional. And so uh, otherwise, it's just obviously chaos. And see, the, the readers should, should I mean, the, our listeners today should think, we're not talking about whether or not Donald Trump obstructed justice, whether or not the ICE law is a good law, whether or not the immigration laws are good laws. If you agree that we should have uh, laws and they should be executed uniformly, which is necessary to the rule of law, then these things have to be set up in the way they're set up. And if that breaks down, we're not going to have the rule of law. Now, when we come back from break, I'm going to give people a chance to go and read Kimberly Strassel's column, but it discusses how a president defeats obstruction. And she has some recommendations for him, as I'm sure you do, as I do, and he ends up making up his own mind, as he obviously did yesterday when he called Fox and Friends. But I I, I was amazed yesterday. I, I, I listened to him and was saying he's back in his element, 
freewheeling, swinging for the fences, swinging from the hips, hitting long balls. And the left melted down because he said, oh, yeah, uh, Cohen's handled a few things for me, including the Stormy Daniels thing. And they thought he'd made an admission against interest. What amazes me, Larry, is that everybody knows that Michael Cohen represented Donald Trump in the Stormy Daniels matter. And yet they're trying to make it a news story. It's not news. What's yeah. news is is Mike Pompeo. What's news is that North and South Korea are meeting in the DMZ right now. I, I think it's over. It's been an eight and a half hour summit between Kim Jong-un and President Moon of South Korea and their declaration that the 65-year-old armistice will soon be put aside in, in favor of a peace treaty. That's news. That's not the Michael Cohen thing. Yeah. And historic, right? It's a big deal. And uh, just just remember... See, this, in the end, these issues are not about Donald Trump. These are about the, the method of governing the United States of America. And these issues won't go away when Donald Trump eventually does, which, of course, he must and will. And so the people who hate Trump, they say that, you know, the most reckless thing in, in January, there was a, uh, a spate of articles about how this man had fallen below the level of the of the president of the presidency of the United States because he had said back to Kim Jong Un who's you know now acting more human just lately that in response to a threat we're going to blow up a bunch of your cities Trump responded I got a bigger nuclear button than you do yeah well that's you know first of all it's not clear to me that that's unpresidential Teddy Roosevelt Walks off the Eisenhower <laughs> said, if you use uh, nuclear weapons, surely Korea will be destroyed as surely as night follows day. And people speak bluntly like that. Yeah, well, and you know, because if you're threatened in that way, and that's such a big threat, right? Then he, all he did was respond to it. And the point is, now they're talking, right? And so, good. Good. And when we come back, we'll talk about other ways that this most unusual president, and that's how I just referred to him, the most unusual president, deals with obstruction. Use this time to go and read Kim Strassel's piece in the Wall Street Journal. I'll go and reread it, and you should do it as well. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, where leaders are made, hillsdale.edu, for all of you folks looking for a place where your uh, young son or daughter may repair to actually be educated, hillsdale.edu, is for you. All of our conversations dating back to Homer and 2013 are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, during the break, people wonder what we talk about during the break. It's not just sports. It sometimes is high-minded stuff. We're talking about federalism and the tension between state authority. And you were about to tell a story about Andrew Jackson and John Calhoun. So in this same nullification crisis in which uh, James Madison was alive and intervened, uh, Calhoun was, was Jackson's vice president. And Calhoun was a unionist and a pro-slavery guy, and he died before the Civil War. So he never decided which of those two things, was, never got a chance to decide which of those things was the most important to him. But the, South Carolina proposed that, the, that a state could, and it would, uh, nullify the operation of a federal law within its borders. It's called nullification. Uh, Jefferson Davis, the president of the, uh, the Confederacy, when he gave his farewell speech to the Senate to go join the new sovereign country of the Confederacy, uh, he, he gave a speech and said that 
nullification was a vain attempt to keep the union together and and misguided policy. But anyway, so you see that it, it, things have gotten a lot worse by 1860. Right. So there's a thing where, you know, Andy Jackson was a very salty guy, and he wasn't an aristocratic kind of guy. You know, Calhoun was academic and complicated and tall and, uh, and you know, reserved and uh, a very good talker, though. And uh, And Andy Jackson was this fighter. You know, he was just really something. That Trump likes him a lot, right? They're kind of alike in that regard. So they, uh, Jackson made some famous toast just before Calhoun resigns from the vice presidency to the Union, one and inseparable now and forever. And Calhoun re- re- responded with the toast to the Union, next to our liberties most dear. <laughs> so, <you> see, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. I had not heard of that exchange. You know, and there, and that's those tensions. The tensions that we're talking about right now—that is is a feature of the secession crisis. I said it started in 1832. It didn't really. It started a bit before 1820 in the Missouri Compromise, when it it became forces, very large forces, began emerged that would attempted to keep slavery in the advantage or to destroy it. And that and the movement of the Western lands is what what provoked, what drove the crisis and ultimately led to the Civil War. You know, it's but, a large question to me. I, I was reviewing the, the Northwest Ordinance, uh, the, the mother of Ohio, so it's an important document. And uh, it, it passed without opposition from the South, Dr. Arne. I, I mean, I, this is an unfair question to ask you to do in a minute and a half. How did it go from the recognition that that would be land forever free of the taint of slavery, uh, but then the compromises fell apart? Well, no, no, no law ever passed Congress without opposition, and that one didn't either. But the opposition was mild, and, uh, and the point was there were some Southerners who objected but thought they saw other interest in the thing for them, which means that the slavery problem was not central or intense, which means, because remember, Virginia gave up the claims to the Northwest Territory. Right. And Jefferson, the slaveholder, from a slaveholding state is the one who caused, and Jefferson and Virginia caused this provision that there be no slavery in the Northwest Territory. Now, the Missouri Compromise is exactly 33 years later, one human generation, and the debate is transformed. Now you've got to parcel out who's slave and who's free with an idea of keeping the number, you know, at least the partisans of, of the slavery, keeping the number of states equal between or not deteriorating further because there were more free states. And so they had to keep their power in the Senate. And that means that a sentiment had grown up. And John C. Calhoun is the, is the prophet of that sentiment. And John, Key, the, John C. Calhoun and Jeff Davis and Alexander Stevens and all those guys we read in our Constitution Reader, they just came to the view that uh, that evolution had created an inferior race. They created a theology. Yeah. They created a theology to prevent the Declaration of Independence from reaching its logical conclusion. We'll come right back with Dr. Larry Arn and talk about what's in the Wall Street Journal. Peter Wallace and Kim Strassel columns. Go and read them. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining the Hugh Hewitt Show this morning. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things great and lasting are talked about in this hour, the last radio hour of the week with Dr. Larry Arn and one of his colleagues from Hillsdale. 
Hillsdale, collegehillsdale.edu. But we also, we love to get President Arn out of bed early. He's, you know, president of a college. He often does not rise until noon. And so he's up early, and we get to talk with him about tweets as they occur from the President of the United States. And indeed, the President of the United States has tweeted. <laughs> Please do not forget, writes the President of the United States, the great help that my good friend, President Xi of China, has given to the United States, particularly at the border of North Korea. Without him, it would have been a much longer, tougher process. Uh, Dr. Ern, he's, he's declaring victory a little early here. I'm worried. Yeah, well, uh, there'll be another tweet before the morning is out, and so I wouldn't worry too much. But uh, that's the right thing to say, isn't it? I mean... The danger is he actually thinks that, and uh, what he should think, in my little opinion, is that he should be watching and talking and paying the closest attention, because uh, we were talking again in the break. I'm sorry, people. But um, the way this could go in North Korea is the unification of the peninsula under Chinese influence, right, which is what the Korean War was about in the beginning. Yep, And uh, the reason the line is where it is is because the Chinese spent, sent something like, if I remember right, a million people across the border to, to attack uh, American soldiers under MacArthur, and it ended up in a, something like a stalemate. And, uh, that, you know, that was some of the hardest fighting that the American military has ever seen. And uh, so China has ambitions, right, all over Asia – and it's possible that this is an expression of Chinese ambitions. And uh, I'm glad that it's going on. And, of course, the talks have to be embraced. But then you've got to keep your eyes open because this is dangerous stuff as well as opportune stuff. Yeah. It, it is very, very complicated stuff, which brings us to the two Wall Street Journal pieces that you brought to my attention this morning. The first is by Kim Strassel, always delivers amazing pieces, How Trump Takes on Obstruction. The second by an old acquaintance of mine, Peter Wallison, who succeeded Fred Fielding as counsel to President Reagan. And Peter Wallison writes about senators on the verge of a political breakdown. So they're connected. How, how is the president dealing with the obstruction? The obstruction is primarily coming from the Senate because of its rules. And Wallison writes that the government may cease to function because of this, Dr. Arn. That's right. Uh, you, uh, you could say, you know, any time you set up a system like ours, any time, there's only one like ours, and only one that's really ever worked. And uh, the, the fault lines between the branches and between the federal government and the states are where many of the greatest controversies arise. And those controversies are generally good. This one is good because this column this morning, for example, makes the point that the branches are at such loggerheads that they, uh, they can't, the government might not function, and that's a signal to the people that they'd better start thinking about this because in the end, all of this is under their control. Not the Supreme Court, not any branch of government, not the states. In the end, the constitutional majority, to quote Lincoln's first inaugural, uh, no, uh, July, sorry, in the July 1861 message to Congress, a constitutional majority, and I'm paraphrasing, easily shifting with time and circumstance is the only true sovereign of a free people. So, 
these conflicts. And, you know, it is true that the executive branch can be crippled, and it's good to state what would cripple it. There's an alliance between large parts of the Congress, a vast bureaucracy that makes most of our laws, and the court system that protects that bureaucracy. And those three things become a force unto themselves, and then the proper constitutional functioning of the government in all three branches, by the way. We're talking mostly about the executive today, where the, where the problems are acute and immediate because the executive has to act in acute and immediate circumstances. But all of the branches are distorted, and they fought into each other's clothes. The uh, Congress executes. Uh, the courts make laws. The president is kind of a figurehead, and if we like him, we celebrate how great he is. But enormous things go on all the time without his direct control in the execution of the law. So that's, that's what the crisis is. And it's not, and people think it's Trump. The, the reason Trump is the occasion, Churchill had a saying, he'd say, wars often start, on sm- big wars often start on small occasions, but never for small reasons. Huh. And so it looks like Donald Trump is causing all of this. But these problems have been present uh, and growing. Uh, they, were, they, were, they started and they have been growing since the 1960s. And, and Trump is the occasion because he's trying to change things. And trying, he for is, example, to restrain he, the bureaucracy. He is direct. And, okay. and in response, and we also have around us a media culture now, which is ubiquitous, and I am part of it, and you are part of it by being here, uh, that never stops, and it needs to be fed, and it feeds off of controversy, and it rewards the irresponsible. So that, for example, John Tester of Montana, who is, a, is simply an embarrassment to the state of Montana, attacked an admiral in the United States Navy, Ronnie Jackson, with unsubstantiated pages of allegations, including that he was drunk and driving and wrecked a car. There's not, there's not a lick of proof of this. He just put it out there to drive him from the nomination process, and he was successfully so driven. Yesterday's hearing of Scott Pruitt was nothing but uh, an avalanche of javelins, uh, if, I, if I can mix metaphors. And he endured it all, and he was fine, and he, he doesn't care. He's a smart guy, and it's, as uh, Ken Kramer is going to be the new senator from North Dakota said, I have never before seen a cabinet member who is in command of the facts of his agency as you are, Administrator Pruitt. And I, I know Scott, he's a friend. My son works at EPA. I always say that. But the, the fact is he's very, very smart. But it's, it, this, is, this is the war that is being waged because of the policy. And I want to read what you pointed out to me, the four paragraphs of uh, Peter Wallison's piece. Some may think that Democratic senators today have simply been seized by the temporary insanity of their base and that the old tradition will eventually reassert itself. But this hope ignores political reality. Republican senators also have a base. Although generally more respectful of the Constitution structure, the GOP base is likely to insist when the next Democratic president takes office that Republican senators follow the precedent Democrats are now setting. Things could get worse next year. If the Democrats gain a Senate majority in this November, that probably means no Trump nominee other than one approved by the resistance will be able to win confirmation thereafter. Even if Republicans keep the Senate majority, it is only a matter of time before the tables are turned. Both parties could be caught in the same senseless game of retaliation. It's hard to imagine how this ends well. If there's a ray of light, it is that a wide majority of Americans would doubtless agree that the president they elected should be given the opportunity to govern. This quiet middle should vote against the Senate who are endangering the system. 
Any senators who care more for the institution than for their popularity with either side should see this group as a base from which to speak to the better angels of our nature. One example is Mr. Coons, Chris Coons, the Democrat from Delaware, who put a foot forward by dropping his opposition to Mr. Pompeo and voting present instead. Perhaps he realized that a negative committee vote might have weakened both the new Secretary of State and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Given the temper of the times, it would almost a heroic act. And no one would want to be reading Mr. Coons' mail this week. But this is a point in U.S. history when a profile and courage consists of merely doing what most Americans would say is the right thing. That's eloquent, Larry Arndt. Oh, yeah. And timely, huh? It, uh, and see, that's exactly right. That's the Senate. I don't know why he did that. It sounds like Peter Wallace can't be sure. But I think it was a brave act. And that is the old temper of the Senate that we ought to be recovering, right? That, that temper, if you just think, some of the greatest debates uh, in, in Senate history involved John C. Calhoun, involved Jefferson Davis, involved uh, Daniel Webster, and that that used to be the best show in town, and it went on for years, and they were arguing through the slavery controversy in all of its many aspects. Uh, the aspects were, to list them, the rightfulness of it. Claims advanced for the first time in American history that it was right, that it was a positive good. And then they included the constitutional issues, which are complex. What can the federal government do about slavery in the states? What is the scope of the federal control of the vast federal territories, larger than the incorporated states in territory? Could the Congress forbid slavery in them? Uh, could the Congress, could a state, a free state, forbid me taking, you know, as the argument goes, the, ex- the most extreme argument, constitutional argument in favor of slavery is this. A slave is a piece of property, and wherever I take my property, into into the federal territories in my own state or into a free state. It's a piece of property, and the federal government is required to protect it, you see. And if you just think about the great, dread, the great and terrible Dred Scott case, Dred Scott was a slave who was taken both into a free territory, Wisconsin, and into a free state, Illinois, and then with the help of some of his former masters, he sued for his freedom on the ground that he'd been taken out of the jurisdiction where slavery was protected. And, and the Supreme Court ruled, and see, the conflict between the branches, think of this. The Republican Party had been born, you know, back when it was a genius party, uh, had been born with the idea that we won't touch slavery in the states, but we'll forbid it in the territories. And that'll place it in the course of ultimate extinction, a constitutional way to destroy that institution. Take time, alas, but that was the way. So what Tawney did in a divided The court, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and, and, and he did it, by the way, by grabbing power that was not his. He, he, he invented a controversy. Uh, he could have dismissed that case for lack of standing, which he did. He, he announced that Dred Scott had a lack of standing because he could not be a citizen because he was a slave. And then he could have ended it. But he went further than that, uh, Larry Arnn, in, in an act of grabbing power that was not his, which is what the Senate is doing right now. In an act of grabbing power that was not his, he brought about a civil war that killed 600,000 people. That's it. That's it. And, you know, he was... And like, like everybody else, he was trying to save it, right? He was trying to settle the matter. He was trying to put it to bed. And uh, he was a fool, but 
that was his intention. And see, that, and that's a point, right? It's the reason why I do what I do for a living. You know, uh, on most days of the week, I live like a fraternity boy. And as you say, go to bed at 2 and get up at noon. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> An admission but, against interest, which I shall yeah. save. <laughs> <laughs> Can we have that on tape, uh, Generalissimo, for the next segment opening? I just want to, I want to circulate that. You sound widely. like the head of the Lollipop Guild. Gets up at noon and starts to work at one, takes an yeah. hour for lunch, and then two is done. <laughs> done. Yeah. Oh, I love that. We are going to keep that, Doctor. On standby. Welcome back, America. Two Hewitt with Doctor Larian, president of Hillsdale College. Now it is time to praise Mitch McConnell, the leader of the United States Senate. We've been bashing his institution, but for a couple of reasons, not the least of which negotiating the. Uh, approval of uh, Mike Pompeo to be the Secretary of State, Rick Grinnell to go to be our ambassador to Germany. Uh, but he also invoked cloture yesterday. He's going to move six more uh, appellate judges, federal appeals judges, bringing, uh, they've already done that successfully 15 times, including Kyle Duncan. They're all originalists. They're, 15 is uh, the number that George W. Bush had confirmed by the end of November in his second year. It's only May, and we're going to blow past that number so far uh, by the end of this year. But now he's faced with a problem, Dr. Arn. Four of his colleagues on the Republican side have done some grandstanding in the Judiciary Committee, which is run by the able and, and man of integrity uh, Chuck Grassley. They do not want Robert Mueller to be fired. Now, the president said he's not going to fire Robert Mueller, and he shouldn't fire Robert Mueller, but it is within his power to do so. And it is not within the power of the Senate or the Congress of the United States to tell him not to do so. I mean, that is a clear constitution. They can create the, the independent counsel statute if they want, but they cannot forbid the firing of a member of the Department of Justice. And so Mitch McConnell will have to take the heat for this. And I think he will. I do not believe he will allow a vote. And I think we should praise him for that. Oh, yeah. So this is what the Republican Congress tried to do to Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War. They had overwhelming majorities. And so they started dinking around with laws that would prevent the president from dismissing the officials whom they had approved for him to appoint. And so that went beyond the comity you talk about, where you let the president appoint his people because he's been elected to do the work, and it went to, we're going to control them now. They can't be fired, right? So just think, this is, this is even then, they were talking about cabinet officers, by the way. Lincoln's very clever, and so he, he put, a, put, a, put that to bed by calling a meeting of the senators, uh, leaving that charge. And then he invited the cabinet members in question, too, and didn't tell either one. And then he starts out. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really clever. <laughs> and he's got them all in a room, and they're all astonished to be there, because, of course, they've been talking in back rooms all the time behind his back. And he says, you know, these senators here are saying that you guys have got complaints against me and think I'm incompetent. Is that true? <laughs> and they all said no. No, you know? no. Of course they did, right? So the point is the president has got to, to do the job. And just think what's at the back of this, right? Mueller is a prosecutor. James Comey is a agent, an executive agent of the, of the United States government carrying a gun and, and deploying thousands who do. And so if you make a case that they must be independent. The question is, independent of what? And in the American government, every use of force is traced to an accountability directly or indirectly to the people. 
So in this case, in the case of the FBI and any federal prosecutor, that runs through the elected president of the United States. And if those people become independent, then that means that people carrying guns have the authority to decide what's done with you, and you can't remove them. Now, should, do you think, Leader McConnell attempt to make that argument, or should he merely allow it to die and take the heat? That's a hard argument to teach a country with an attention span of a minute. Well, first of all, attention span is growing, right? Is your show growing? You know? Yes, it is. And, and yes, it it's is. growing because there's a lot of trouble in the country and the world, and people are paying attention. So I actually think he should do both things. Uh, I think he should let it die, and then having let it die, he should say why. Explain. I think he also has to make an argument as we approach these elections that the Senate, that voters of goodwill, even Democrats, must vote for Republican senators because we cannot have the government grind to a halt because of an antipathy towards Donald Trump. To postpone your antipathy towards Donald Trump until we get to the public election of him or re-election. In the meantime, give us a government that work, and that means a Republican majority, or we will get nothing done. There will not be appointees. And by the way, Justice Kennedy, if you're listening... You've got to retire now. I just, you just have to because if the Senate, because of uh, politics, malicious and enduring, flips, they will not confirm for two years. They will not. They will pervert the, the Garrett uh, Merrick Garland uh, president, which was right and proper, into a total blockade, which is not. Yeah, and think there's there's two politics are confused, right? And there's two antip- antipathies in the people right now that affect this question of Trump. You said. There are people who don't like him, and there are people who don't like the Congress for not following him. And a lot of those people in both camps are Republicans, and if the Republicans are split, but that's the kind of thing that's happened, you know. I mean, that's what destroyed the Whig Party, of which Abraham Lincoln was a member, yep. and which the place was taken by, uh, by the Republican Party. So that, you know, that's right. In other words... There's just a lot of thinking people need to do. They need to understand these issues. They need to settle on what is the center of this problem. And my own view is it's a new kind of government that's grown up among us that's huge and entrenched in fighting against change. And we will return to that next week with the next Hillsdale Dialogue. Dr. Larry Aaron, thank you.